Welcome to one of those times in a life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, between friends. There are moments that somehow define us and moments that we It's all over before with notes the falling and the flying. The early 80s were times of financial anxiety for me. I made it more difficult by consistently choosing to fret about money and instead of simply getting a real job. I seldom turned on the heat in the house, and every time it rained, the used car I drove filled up with inches of water. And while I didn't have a body type or a temperament to be a starving artist, I was often a cold and wet one. I continued to believe in what I was doing, had faith that things would work out. And though my songs were well-received in Nashville, they still weren't getting recorded. I would go to my desk most mornings to work on a song, often recalibrating the mathematics of creativity using the three common variables, inspiration, perspiration, and procrastination. The first weekend in April of 1981, we did two sold-out shows at the Seattle Concert Theater, although everything was nearly canceled when earlier in the week Ronald Reagan was shot, and for a few hours at least the country wondered if yet another leader was going to die from his bullet wounds. Those would be the second of three shots heard round the world back then. On December 8, 1980, John Lennon was assassinated outside his front door in New York City. On Monday, March 30th, Ronald Reagan was hit, leaving the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., and on May 13th, Pope John Paul II was gunned down in Vatican Square. In a 20-week period, a poet, a president, and a pope were shot, and the world, again, shocked. On a personal note, I continued to search for ways to better express my feelings. Susan, the woman I had met at the dinner party, she and I were doing well, and we figured if we stayed together forever, whatever we talked about at a given moment wouldn't end up being that important. And if we didn't stay together, the same should be true. And that logic led to some wonderful conversations, although we did find out that nothing much good happens when a serious talk starts after 11 o'clock at night. In early May, my two-year-old nephew broke his leg in a freak playground accident in Spokane. I remember racing across the state to be there and that helpless feeling of knowing there was nothing to do except to be there. McCoy's log house on Beaver Lake turned out beautifully. He decided to host the Beaver Lake Triathlon on Saturday of Memorial Day weekend in 1981. It would be the first of nine annual BLTs. The first long-distance U.S. triathlon, it was the Ironman in Hawaii in 1977. It came about when people were arguing about who was the fittest athlete, a runner, a swimmer, or a biker. A swaggering logic made the case that the best athlete would be the person who could do all three of them faster than anyone else. 
McCoy, one of the best athletes I have ever known, decided he would invite his friends for just such a test. Incorporating a quarter-mile swim, a 25-mile bike ride, and a six-and-a-half-mile run. Without thinking about it, I said, oh, I would love to do it. I'd grown up swimming in lakes in eastern Washington, so I figured I'd be okay in the water. A friend was repping a new brand of shoes. They were called Nikes, and he gave me a couple pair to try. As a runner, I, I tend to be slow, not very steady, but pretty stubborn. And the first urban bike trails were opening in the Seattle area. I splurged and I bought a new bike, and after a few hours on the Burke Gilman Trail, I, I had discovered a new passion. A few days before that big event, I went out to McCoy's and I did a training ride with him on the bicycle course. Afterwards, I was feeling confident enough to tell him I wanted to try the running course as well. He had the good sense to be done for the day, so he gave me instructions, telling me to make sure to turn at such and such a corner, and off I went. I missed the turn. I got completely lost was quickly feeling myself enter a familiar state of cold and wet. But fortunately, as I was deciding who would get my guitar after I died there on the road, McCoy drove up in his car. His look of concern quickly replaced by a stream of laughter. Pearson, look at you! Your tits are on fire! I peered down and saw in the appropriate spots where the skin was rubbed raw and had left quarter-sized red splotches on my t-shirt. A few days later, McCoy won the event. I managed to not get lost on the run, a run that turned into a walk, and the bloody t-shirt, it's long gone. And any day now, I, I expect McCoy to stop reminding me how pathetic I looked when he came and rescued me on that running course a few days before that first BLT. There are moments that somehow define us and moments that we define. It's all over before we know it. The Bob Flick and I had stayed in touch after the tour of Japan. In the 70s and 80s, he was writing and producing lots of commercials, and he regularly invited me to sing or to play on them. Seattle ad agencies were beginning to be recognized nationally. The number of ads produced in the area created a pool of talented session musicians who were also recording songs for the foreground music industry, an industry that was developing in this area and fast replacing Muzak as the music of choice for public spaces around the country and the world. Danny Kaye, the actor and the comedian, and, and his business partner, Lester Smith, they owned the Seattle Mariners then, and they built a world-class recording studio in downtown Seattle, not far from Bob's office. The walls of the halls of the studio became lined with gold and platinum records, Recorded there by the likes of Hart, Bachman-Turner, Overdrive, and the Steve Miller Band. Bob also knew, and he'd worked with Jerry Denon, who was lining up investors and releasing albums on his first American record label. 
Because years earlier, the Kingsman released Louie Louie to great success on Jerry's label. He had, a, he had a national reputation. And Bob worked out an agreement that if I delivered a finished master to Jerry, he and his company would do the packaging, marketing, and distribution for a record. And so in 1981, it was possible for me to make a record with Bob Flick and all of his experience producing in a world-class studio using world-class musicians for a label that had a proven track record and do it all in Seattle. The fact that a few people urging me to make the album were willing to invest in the project made it possible for me to go for it. Bob and I started pre-production in June. He helped choose the dozen original songs to record. We chose September to go in the studio and while it was not an easy conversation, the guys at Big and Famous understood and were supportive when I told them that I was going to use experienced session players on the project. With a limited budget, we decided to record the album live in the studio. We planned an evening of studio rehearsal one day and two nights of recording. Studio A at K. Smith was a big enough space so we decided to invite friends to come and be part of the experience and hopefully add a magic and a spirit to it all. The most significant decision was what role would and should McCoy play. It was hard for me to imagine going forward without him, and he wisely wasn't going to quit his day job as a first-grade teacher we decided to call what we were doing Pearson with McCoy. The name we chose for the album, Between Friends. Both our pictures would be on the front and back covers. We worked hard that summer to be ready when we got into the studio. Bob introduced us to the musicians the week before the recording. The piano player, Ted Broncato, asked if he and I could do some extra rehearsing of course, I said. What I didn't know as he and I sat around the piano at his house near Green Lake was that it would be the beginning of a lifetime collaboration with him and the relationship of a lifetime with his whole family. And when the day arrived to go into the studio, I felt ready. When the phone rang, I answered it. With that friendly greeting, I'd learned from my dad in this time long before caller ID. Not the more common hello, but hi, I said, and then waited to find out who was on the other end of the line. It's all over before we know it. The was my dad. And while he was still working for the Foreign Service and now stationed in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, he was calling to say he was stopping for a day in Seattle on his way to Spokane. When you planning on coming, I asked. I'll be there tonight, he replied. Tonight? Great, I said, using one of his favorite words. I'll be in the recording studio the next three evenings, I continued. Well, I'll be going to Spokane tomorrow night, he said. 
And with that, we made arrangements for him and my older brother to come by the studio that night. I told him how much I look forward to seeing him. I, I don't remember him giving an explanation for his sudden visit. I didn't sense in his voice there was trouble. I do remember not long after hanging up the phone being aware of how unusual it was for him to simply show up like that. I also remember easily deciding to see the timing of my dad's visit as a blessing that he would be there at this most important time. There was unexpected tension in the studio when my dad and brother arrived. The band had easily played through half a dozen songs but couldn't find a groove for the song Greyhound and the momentum had stalled. The harder everyone tried, the more strained it became. I don't remember getting through that song that night or any of the remaining songs. And suddenly, there was real doubt about whether we'd be ready the next night when people arrived and the recording light went on. My brother left. I took my dad home. He was tired. I figured it was from the travel. The last time we'd been together was two years earlier in South Africa. I was genuinely glad to see him. My dad and I were good friends, and he was and will always be my hero. We talked about how his trip was, how Mom was doing. I told him he should sleep in my bed, and I would put a pad down in the living room, which I did. It was only after we turned out the light that it became clear that something was dreadfully wrong. There were noises coming from the bedroom. My dad was up and in an incredibly anxious state. Over the next few hours, we talked about how, beginning with a bad economy and mismanagement, investments that he'd left when he went overseas had gone sour. The anxiety was overwhelming. There was nothing to do that night except be together. It's the only time I remember my dad truly needing comfort from me. Although there was nothing I could say or do that would truly comfort him. That night is also the one time I ever held my dad. And this is the first time I have shared that moment with anyone except a very few. It would take eight years for my dad to recover financially and return completely to his optimistic self. At the time, it was not clear that that would or could ever happen. As long as he lived, we never once talked about that night. A night that eventually became the next day. At first light, my father and I stepped out into an already warm September morning. The house was a few blocks from the east shore of Lake Union. And we walked down the hill and found a bench where we sat quietly by the still water. The only conversation I remember showed my dad's true nature. Trying to lighten the mood, I asked him when life was best for him. And without a moment's hesitation or a hint of irony, he said, it's always been good. In time, we headed home. My dad paced and talked on the phone a lot that day. 
I went through the songs, both with a guitar and in my head. And then before we knew it, it was time to go and make a record. It's all over before we know it. The falling and the dying. It was clear from the first take of the first song that the recording would be fine. McCoy and I faced one another, listening through earphones to ourselves, each other, and the other musicians that included drums, bass, piano, and two additional guitars. The work that the two of us had done through the years and over the last few months was paying off as our voices met and matched and blended as one. To this day, I have not worked with better musicians than I did that evening. The fact that they were adding their talents to songs I had written added to the excitement and the satisfaction. There was a mixture of familiarity, discovery, and professionalism that I hear. I hear them in the songs when I listen to them today. And the invited friends, they were perfect. A combination of enthusiastic, respectful, and glad to be there. And my dad sat right in front of me. And while I couldn't look at him, when the tape was rolling, we kept making eye contact between the songs. And every once in a while, he'd smile, and he'd give me the thumbs up. And as soon as we had a successful recording of the song Greyhound, all remaining anxiety was gone. Over the years, I've gotten better at being in the moment when I'm in a big moment. That night, however, it was more like the first time I stood up on water skis holding onto a rope for dear life being pulled behind a boat. The fact is, the moment was more in me than I was in the moment. Lots of time I felt like I was just hanging on, hoping to not fall, and I didn't. And it ended up feeling great. We took a break about halfway through the recording. My dad needed to get to the airport. I told him I'd see him in Spokane in a few days. We hugged, and he was gone. There were a lot of people to say hi to. Most of them I knew. I told the guys in the band to invite anyone they wanted. Ted Broncato invited his parents, who had never seen him in a recording session. We didn't know standing there that we would all become friends for a lifetime. I have friends who owned a restaurant on Capitol Hill. One of them would become my wife 14 years later. But that night they were willing to close early so we could all go from the studio to their place after the session. I remember lots of laughter and good food and bad jokes. Like the one about the guy going headlong into the sky who sees the guy going just as fast toward the ground. Do you know anything about Coleman stoves, he says? No! Do you know anything about parachutes? It was that kind of goofy end of the night. And then I asked McCoy to join me on the back porch of that restaurant. And we sat there in the silence for a long time. And the owner came by with a couple of Heinekens. 
And suddenly all the conflicting feelings came pouring out. And I started laughing as loud as I knew how. And crying as hard as I could. The falling and the dying. We'll leave those two guys on that back porch for now. You know, I continue to be surprised creating these chronicles. In a way, it feels like deep sea fishing or hard rock mining. There's no way to know what's out there or what happens to what's in here when it gets out there. I continue to be surprised and sometimes shocked in what gets expressed in the exploring. And at the same time, I I try to be careful and aware of what my dad would be thinking. So far, I think he'd say great and be proud of me. But I, I, I don't take that for granted. The alchemy of a chronicle baffles me. What happens? What happens to that 24 hours that I spent with my dad when it goes from something that happened long ago, seldom talked about and alive only in my memory, to becoming part of a bigger story shared like this around a campfire. I don't know. Finding that out makes one of those times in a life as much a journey of discovery as one of memory. In 2009, 28 years after we recorded Between Friends, we brought the same band back together in the same building, with the same producer and the same engineer and lots of the same people in the audience. And we recorded 20 songs that we called Between Old Friends. One of those songs is about that moment on the back porch of that restaurant. And we'll let it be and have the last word in this chronicle. Thinking back now to the fall of 1981 when we recorded Between Friends. And I remember all those fears and the doubts and also how my dad was struggling back then. And when it was over, looking back at what we'd done as far as my dad, what I couldn't do, and how the emotions came pouring out like mad on the back steps of that restaurant, sitting there with you. And I'm laughing as loud as I know how, crying as hard as I joy and sorrow are so close together I don't know where one stops and the other begins life is suspended in that one moment as it waits to be defined it's all over 
Sometimes life is simply contradictions that can never be resolved. Mysteries, puzzles, oracles, riddles that we spend our whole lives and we never solve. And yet we must have faith in the cleansing moment when we somehow glimpse the truth. And for an instant, it's all so clear. And we know things that we didn't know we knew. That back porch was one defining moment I may never know what he But I know how much it meant to have you sitting there next to me. There are moments that somehow define us and moments that we define. It's all over before we know it. The Thanks for sharing one of those times in a life. At the next campfire, Joanne and the Sandman. Hope to see you then.